Greetings, future fossils. Michael Garfield here welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in deep time, the ancient world, the distant future, what we have inherited and what we will leave behind. One of my favorite things to do with this is use it as a platform to interview people that I respect as elders, people who have stood before through some insane challenges that I <laughs> make my problems seem minor in comparison and people who have the kind of depth and perspective and accumulated life wisdom to make this time capsule project really rewarding. So it is with great pleasure that I introduce today's guest, Joanna Harcourt-Smith, the host of the strangely similarly named Future Primitive podcast, an abiding figure in the psychedelic counterculture in no small part due to her work as a writer and in no small part due to her rather famous relationship with LSD popularizer and disgraced Harvard psychologist Timothy Leary. And we'll get into that a little bit in this chat. But uh, before we do, a quick plug for my subscription service at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield, where I post all of my new art and music videos, the talks I give at festivals around the world. Basically, if you enjoy this podcast, then stop in at Patreon and check out all of the stuff that I've posted for free for people to appreciate, including recently the talk I gave on tech ethics as psychedelic parenting at Australia's biggest bank. That was a truly bizarre and wonderful experience that I'm delighted to share with you. For the price of a stick of beef jerky every month, you can help me make sure that this podcast is a sustainable endeavor and I can continue to pour even more love and time and effort into making this podcast the most amazing thing that it can be. Also, we have a Facebook discussion group, Future Fossils. We'd love to have you in there. And if you haven't given this podcast a review on Stitcher or iTunes or Google Play, please do. It slightly improves the odds that one of these conversations will be of life-changing positive benefit to someone someday. And that's what really matters, right? Okay, well, with that, the amazing and wise Joanna Harcourt-Smith. Well, greetings, everybody. This is another episode of Future Fossils Podcast. I am here today... And very pleased, very amused to be here today with the eminent Joanna Harcourt Smith, who her claim to fame might be helping get Timothy Leary, her ex-boyfriend, out of prison and helping get some things into prison while he was in there. But I have to tell you, she's a far more interesting person than the elevator pitch could ever lead you to believe she has a podcast herself that is bizarrely titled 
future primitive, which led us to believe that today we should record a two-headed podcast monstrosity. And so that's, that's what this is. This is this is the second half. I'm here with Joanna and her partner Jose at this beautiful home in Santa Fe, or just outside of Santa Fe, in this, this gorgeous golden little valley and pines and red earth, and it's just awesome. And we had a very interesting conversation I can't possibly recap for you, so I encourage you to check out the 500-plus episodes of her podcast until you get to the one that has me in it, and then listen to that one also. And uh, welcome to the archives, Joanna. Thank you, Michael. I'm, uh, I'm definitely having fun today. So this podcast is based on the premise that there are more people studying the ancient world today than were alive in those cities once upon a time. Mm -hmm. And that there might be this sense of like a pressure or a weight that the witnessing future might bear upon this moment that we can actually maybe tune ourselves into that and discover some interesting things by, by asking what significance this moment and the traces that we leave of it might have for the unborn multitudes. So I don't know, what are your, what are your thoughts on the future and unborn people and your relationship to unborn people? Well, I would say that people are like mushrooms. And uh, earlier when you said uh, uh, claim to fame, that's... Uh, that's a, a, a strange thing to say, like, um, yes, my claim to fame was the fact that I found the mushroom Timothy Leary in the forest, <laughs> and I had to eat that mushrooms so uh, I could really start to flex the accordion of my being. <laughs> and... Um, up till then, uh, I had been taught that uh, music was dangerous, but then uh, I couldn't really believe it because my body just was so eager to undulate and shake and stretch. And when I got to that point, fuck and feel and smell and see and hear that I had to find this human mushroom that I could consume and that would then blow my mind. And so my claim to fame is that I found a human being that really opened up my knowledge that everything I had experienced until then I had com composted as bullshit. And if I let go of all that bullshit, then there were universes for me to discover and many other mushroom people to consume. 
in order to become the person who is so amused by herself today. <laughs> so that's a little answer to your big question. So does that mean that you would regard the people of the future the way that you, like a like a buffet that you don't get to eat all of these amazing mind blowing people you'll never get to meet? I wouldn't I wouldn't say that because I I I think that we are completely parts of each other. I mean the the I I don't even know that there is a past and a future. I have to say that on the um the numerous uh, psychedelic experiences I have been gifted with by life have told me that the, there is no past and there is no future. Uh, again, I'll use a, a central metaphor we, or the metaphor again of a mushroom and, and all the underground connection. I mean, all across the universe and and uh, uh, the ground of being, we are completely connected in the past or in the future, so um, everything lives, everything wants to live, nothing dies, it just becomes composted and entwined with each other, and so, yes, I, I might not see the the, the 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 I don't want to say people. I don't want to say beings. I don't want to say machines. I don't want to say disembodied. But I won't see the future. But I am it. Mm. I am it totally at this point in time. That's why I have to be fun. Have fun. Uh, Enjoy in great gratitude every moment because there's no past, there's no future, and I am it. So, do you think much about the sense of like ancestors or having them being being one, or does it just seem erroneous? My my. My ancestors are delicious because their their this particular how do you say mind shining dish this particular spot on my skin they're right there they're they're the they're they're the tree outside I mean they they're in they're all inside of me they're outside of me they're all around. I don't think anything really dies. There is transformation, infinite transformation, and the combination, we are combined. Mm. We are combination or something like that. So what, how does that inform, when you say, when you've got future primitive podcast, so... How did, what what meaning do those words even have for you in an experience of time that is so rich and opulently now? <laughs> there, 
That's what it's all about. You amused yourself marvelously with your question. I loved looking at your face when you were coming up. That's what it is. That's exactly. It's it's an amazing. Thank you. I I got. It's an amazing com, combobulation. It's a. It's every week. There's this constellation, and to say weak, of course, I contradict myself, but there, there, <laughs> there is this constellation of words that are music, that are all coming together. I mean, that's when you were reading my bio and you said uh, celebrated chef. Oh, yeah. I mean, celebrated, celebrated, uh, that's words, but, but celebrating chef, May chef only because when I make a soup, I mean it's like painting. The getting all these ingredients together is just so exciting. It's so alive. It's like somebody says to me, "Oh, that's so delicious! Can you give me uh, the recipe?" And I say, "I can't give you the recipe." <laughs> Don't be crazy. It's impossible. It it just happened in this moment, and it will be forever because it's inside of us. Okay? <laughs> I love to hear you laughing. No recipe for you, sir. No recipe. There, there is just a com, com, combobulation of things. So do you do you ever catch yourself slipping out of amusement into anticipating something? Looking forward to something or, or worrying about something about to happen? Oh, well, that's maybe like painting. Uh, that's totally been the, one of the things of my life. Um, I used to think that, of course, I would get depressed, suicidal, um, joyful, envious, jealous. But the only problem with these things is that I froze them. I mean, frozen food is not as good as, uh, <laughs> as fresh food. So I would take all these things and I'd stick them in the freezer and this way they would always be like that and they didn't amuse me once they were frozen. But maybe one of the things that I've learned in my life is that it's it's an absolute dance. So now I can be suicidal and amused at the same time because there's not just my ego living it. There are several parts of myself looking at what is going on. And it's almost like uh, like... I used to be depressed by the committee that was inside of me, but now I always have fun with the committee. <laughs> I mean, I've got my own theater going here, and I don't freeze any of the of the actors in this theater. And do makes, they have more fun? Do they have more fun? Do they have more fun now that you're not freezing them? Oh, they have. They've had the reason. I truly believe that the reason that uh, I haven't been sick in 35 years uh, is because they're having more fun. <laughs> I mean, if they didn't have fun, they would come up with some nasty stuff to um, to amuse me. Mm. I mean, they would make 
serious mistakes like cancer or HIV or whatever it is, but they don't have to do that as long as they're having fun. <laughs> so William Irwin Thompson said something about <clears throat> the daemon not really caring whether it's pleasure or pain. It just it just wants the intensity of human experience. Honey, how else do you learn? Yeah. The only way I learn is through intensity. I mean, I become forgetful where there's no intensity, but let's not be mistaken. There can, there can be great intensity in peace. I'm not just talking about intensity of, uh, of feeling. I'm talking mm. about intensity of serenity as well. And so, at this time, I can feel serene about wanting to kill myself. And there I learn, because there's an, int- an intent. Not that I want to kill myself right now, but all this rainbow of stuff keeps dancing through this brain, for sure. But even as I that, that, that thought does... Your serenity in noticing it, does that transform the thought at all compared to the way that that thought would have appeared before? Is the thought, like, uh, friendlier in its... Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, as I was, in a sense, trying to say, Either you get sick and you amuse yourself. I mean, I'm I'm going to be 71, and you amuse yourself with knee replacements or or, um, whatever illnesses people get by this age, or it all of being is more friendly. Uh, Gratitude becomes the greatest element of your life, uh, that's the key. I mean, that's the key. Being, being, I mean, like we were talking about before, I mean, the sperm and the egg, it's, if you look at the odds, it's just absolutely extraordinary. And then take that and transform it into every instant of your life and realizing if you look at the stars if you uh, if you if you study the galaxies i mean how in- incredibly unbelievably amazing that we are here right now and that we can play with what we are here play similar play 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 Play. Play with the best and play with the worst, but play. So I have this one little rant that I have yet to write for my book is about how the future will be playful. So oh, all of these good. these things are, it, like I said, it's kind of a joke because the, the future will be this, the future will be this, and of course, you know, these are all just projections and uh, expanded moment. Right, but regardless, so the future is going to be playful because the narrative that we've drawn for ourselves 
seems to be one in which the environment becomes more complex. It requires socialized creatures to live in it, communicative creatures that can team up and navigate a complex world. And then they create a more complex world that requires more fluid, dynamic, and coordinated teamwork, more intelligent creatures. And so you get this thing where we had, at one point, our ancestor was the sea squirt, or the tunicate. You know, it has a swimming larva, but then it fixes itself to a rock. And then that evolved into fish that swim through their whole life, and they school, and they move together. It's a more playful form. Mm -hmm. You know, and then, like, more recently in human evolution, we, you know, our brains remain young in a way that the adult brains of other primates do not. And that we've, we retain these juvenile characteristics into adulthood. And so it's like the picture that I see here is that we're building a world that rewards childlike relationship to the world. We're building a world that requires us to be constantly learning, constantly in a state of surprise and like a first encounter with things. We're, we, we have to l learn faster than we had to learn a thousand years ago. And we have to remain more flexible mm -hmm. in, this, mm -hmm. in this thing. And so play... It makes sense that we would devise a play, a, a cosmology of play, mm -hmm. you know, that we would say play is the root of the universe because what we see is a universe that's constantly trying to get more and more creative and play, play is the, the babbling brook of that whole thing. And it, it, it expresses itself through our social evolutionary factors putting the emphasis on more and more intelligent, curious, creative people as our societies become more and more fluid and dynamic and complex. As for instance, I mean, I mean instead of choosing your work, I would highly recommend that you choose your play. And be very, 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 very clear about the fact that you're free to play, and but the only addendum to this is that you have to be very serious in choosing your play. It's a marvelous thing. I mean, we are free to choose our play. Um, and God, whatever that is, I mean, the creative, creative impulse, um, I think uh, is a total sense of humor. And like, for instance, I'll give you a very recent, it'll date a podcast when people listen to it in the future. <laughs> but I'll give you a very uh, recent, uh, very clear thing. For instance, the man who owns the, the pipeline, the TPP, the, um, the Dakota pipeline, the pipeline all over the country, actually, um, his name is Kelsey Warren. I mean, the whole thing is 
got very, 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 very tight. Because on the one hand, you had Chelsea Warren, and on the other hand, you have the first Americans, as Obama called them. I really like that, the first Americans. And in this terrible standoff. And then I went, and I, three, four days ago, and I looked at the biography of Kelsey Warren. And what I was interested in is, what, how does Kelsey Warren like to play? Uh, other than being a, a billionaire pipeline. Well, he likes to play with music. He's crazy about music. He has a music festival every year. His favorite thing is his Cherokee Creek Music Festival. Uh, his favorite person in the world is Jackson Brown. I mean, is that really, 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 really funny? I mean, Jackson Brown is a Native American. And I stopped on that and I said, what's going to save this whole situation is the fact that this man loves music. Well, now, the Indigo Girls, Jackson Brown, and all the other people who used to come and play with him at his Cherokee Music Festival are telling him, we're not playing with you anymore. So now we would see. We would see. <laughs> what's going to happen? I bet you he's going to pull back. Because the play at the end of the day is a lot more important than the work. Mm. I mean, if you can't play, you can't breathe. If you can't breathe, you can't live. It's like you weaponized play. <laughs> Say what you mean by that. And finding out what someone loves. Yeah. And using that as the chink in their, their plate mail. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's got to be, there's got to be, there's got to be. And somewhere there's the edge of what you love. Even if you're losing it completely somewhere, mm. somewhere there, everybody has a little clitoris. Well, you know, a few, <laughs> a few years ago I was... I was stopped in a, a rough county in Texas for a broken headlight and searched illegally and posted up for some cannabis-related possession offense that in reality was discovered on the basis of an illegal search, but my attorney advised me not to attempt to take this to trial and to just allow them to, to roll it over on me because I could get the charges reduced and dis deferred maybe and ultimately dismissed, but I, I was not going to get them dropped. So I was like, all right, so the, the, the role here is to convince the district attorney that I'm an upstanding young guy and I'm not a criminal Right. And so I knew, I knew that I had to find some way to get through to her, to make eye contact, to reach her as a human being. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I was doing this Google Glass program 
I was a beta tester for the wearable computer, you know, and right. and I wanted I wrote her this letter that my attorney refused to give her because this this letter said, you know, I'm doing this whole uh, interactive art project now on on transparency and surveillance and accountability and like you know my whole life is an open book you're gonna go online and like you can get into everything about me you know and i'm i'm basically preempting the wearable police camera that you guys are gonna have to have in like two years you know you don't even need to supervise me i'm already supervising myself for you you know but he was like no that's too it's too much you know it's too much they don't they can't take it like that. So I despaired. Yeah. Until the day that the, the determination was actually made. Because I went into court like 13 times over the course of a year waiting wow. for them to actually, mm-hmm. waiting for the, the stars to align so that they would address this case. Yeah. And on the day that it finally happened, I held the door open for this woman as she was entering the courtroom and it happened to be the DA. And I wasn't thinking about that. When I held the door for her, I was just thinking, I'm being a gentleman and I cannot attribute the fact that my charges were reduced to that gesture. But I can say that there it was. There was the chink in the armor. The one opportunity that I had to demonstrate to her that I was a decent human being and not some sort of violent career monster. Because nobody nobody knows what hash is in the criminal justice system. This is the most amazing thing. None of them had any idea. When I explained it to the county court officer a year later, she said, what? Like, what? What? Because, you know, I said, this is, you've got drip coffee and you have espresso. Right. You have... The cannabis flower, and you have cannabis extracts. It's that's the, the county court officer in the most crooked county in the United States said, "Well, then why is it a felony?" I said, "I don't know. I what I but more importantly, I don't know why you don't know." Yeah. Right. So, but at any rate, that was that was about probably the most valuable lesson for me in that whole process was learning about the little things that made every one of those people that you imagine as someone as you know growing up as I did I identified more with the counterculture you see these people as we intentionally render the other as a non-human you know and every one of them had something Everyone I encountered in that system that was just existed only to screw people who were doing nothing wrong, really. Like the majority of the cases handled in those courts were drug possession cases. Mm-hmm. It was interesting to see just how human they really were, you know, and how, how concerned everyone really was with doing the right thing or or trying to be grateful for their job because they had a job and not everybody does. And everybody hates their job, right? I heard that from the county court officer in Williamson County, and it broke my heart. Yeah. And I wanted to take her and say, like, you don't have to hate your job, sweetheart. Yeah. But you can't do that when somebody's got their, you know, the, the, 
the finger on the nuclear button yes. for your, your criminal record, you know? <laughs> but, yeah, so anyway, there is that. The, the court judge, mm-hmm. the final statement on, a twisted statement on play, the court judge turned out to have a play that my attorney was able to exploit in a- attempting to get my probation terminated early because as it happened around the time that I was filing to get off early from state supervision on good behavior, the federal government was investigating the judge for serial numbers on machine guns they'd traced back to him from Mexican gangsters. And so it turns out that his hobby of selling weapons on the side sometimes fabricating sales documents and selling them to sketchy south of the border type that his, well, you know, his vice Uh ended up being the lever upon which my attorney was able to push because otherwise they never would have had any sympathy for me. They had no reason to let me go early. And my my attorney says that he and his buddy just had just knuckled down on this Mm -hmm. guy and said, look, you're about to go to federal prison. What do you care? Right. There it is. Why don't you have a realistic thing? This guy played by the rules, you know? He, he played by the rules of his state supervision. That's a challenge you haven't even had to attack yet. So he's, yeah. in, he's in the federal prison now, and that, that's that. <laughs> See, that's why plot is play. Indeed. Plot is play. It's so, I mean, every single detail is so fascinating. Like, a question is, what is the person you're talking with? What do they long for? Mm. And how can I participate in this longing? What do they love? What do they long for? It's, I I mean, I I fancy myself as a... as a detective, a human, human's detective. I mean, I just love everywhere I go all the time to just really observe what are the details in this plot, in whatever plot I, I come across. And I think I learned that in my time with Timothy Liu mm-hmm. because... I'm in he was in such a dire situation. I mean, he was in solitary confinement for for zero point one grams of marijuana in the found in the ashtray of his car. So they were probably planted there uh, by the the, the uh, police eager to have a scapegoat for the culture. but I mean, it was such a dire situation for me to involve, be involved with someone who was stuck in Folsom Prison in the, in the fourth tier underneath the ground <clears throat> next to Charlie Manson for 0.1 grams of marijuana. It was such a dire situation that there was, it was like this incredible crosswords puzzle, this incredible sudoku or whatever you want to call it that that I had to pay attention to every single 
possible detail, left wing, right wing, all over this plot, I had to, because obviously I was one of the very only people who cared about whether this man stayed in prison or not, because it was useful to many people. I mean, it was useful to the left um, because he was a martyr. And of course, it was useful to the right because he was a scapegoat. So it, I quickly saw that that situation was absolutely practical for everybody involved, except for this young woman who was longing for this interesting man. Uh, I'm always longing for somebody I can have a good conversation with. And uh, just doing it in prison wasn't enough. So I had to pay attention to every single detail. Uh, he escaped from prison. There was an escape trial. The judge was a humpback. I mean, uh, how do you call a humpback? The judge had a, you know, the, a hunchback. A hunch, yeah. The judge was a hunchback. The entire jury was feminine. But how can you acquit a man? I mean, he had them all on his side. But how can you acquit, acquit, a man, acquit a man who was in his cell at 10 o'clock at night in America three and a half years ago and was found in Afghanistan with a beautiful young woman? I mean, how can you acquit him? You, you can't be in a cell in America and three and a half years later be in Afghanistan. So they couldn't acquit him. But, I mean, I just realized that at this moment, because the situation was so impossible, I mean, uh, Reagan was uh, governor, Nixon was president, I mean, Edgar Hoover was at the head of the, the FBI. It was impossible. And in a sense, I loved that. But I knew that it was about relentless detail. And that like in your story, it was this detail that would be unearthed at that point, which would make it like, gaff, the whole knot explode. And it did. I mean, the fact that he was in prison for three and a half years was... Uh, if I read my book, yeah. <laughs> you'll see what I mean. It was amazing. Yeah, she's actually, listeners, she's actually published quite a bit of material about this stuff. Is it stuff from the book that ended up on Reality Sandwich, or was it? I wrote some some uh, special articles yeah. for Reality Sandwich, uh, one of which is really fun. It's called The, the What of the Belly Button. The Secret Sacred Use of the Belly Button, which is about the fact that I have an innie and I definitely could pack enough LSD in the innie to please Timothy and many of the other inmates. See, they strip-searched me uh, because I was the paramour of the good doctor. But it was clear to me that the best place to hide the drugs was the... Uh, my innie belly button. They never thought of that. You're a saint. Oh, yeah? I mean, you know, the, the church has a way of not getting around to these things for like 500 years. I, when, when I was a child, that's what I wanted to be when I grew up. A saint? Yes. 
<laughs> so you tell me I'm successful. That's really good. Well, I mean, my church has a membership of like five people, so you know. But you found out what my longing is. <laughs> you pointed it out. Well, you know, that's like um, was it Saint Dymphna? You know Saint Dymphna? No, I don't. I was just at a mission in California, in Santa Barbara. Uh, recently, and they had the the cards for all the different saints in the gift shop oh. of the mission, and I was looking at them, and as is my fashion, taken by one of the gorgeous young women who had devoted herself to Christ, said, "There's a, there's a real hottie," and I looked at the card, and it was Saint Dymphna, who is the patron saint of the mad. Of the insane. Marvelous. Yes. I was like, well, of course, she's the one I'd notice. Marvelous. But it turns out that... Saint Dimson. Yeah, that she's actually, she's actually the one that is prayed to by people working in mental institutions and, and uh, therapists and clinical psychologists. And, oh, really? Yeah, so it seems like it's, seems like it's there in your, in your wheelhouse. Excellent. It's in the area. You Saint might, Dimson. You might take some... Uh, to take a, a couple out of her playbook. I'm uh, I'm in love with her. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> I have to describe him when he says so. Do you know how some dogs smile? Mm-hmm. Um, but right now you look like a cat who is smiling. You look like a cat. There he is. Um, I mean, I have to say he's quite handsome. I'm very sensitive to handsome men. <laughs> this is true. Oh, yes. I love it. I love handsome men. But anyway, there he is. He's, he's um, a little pulled back with his, with his hand over his mouth, and his eyes are looking very playful. And then he's got his little hairdo and everything. <laughs> And he's going, so, what should I say? Yeah. So everything, everything. To those people in the future who will listen to our, oh, like you were listening to this um, this radio show with Glenn yeah. Gould. Yeah. To the people in the, in the future who, who uh, listen to us now in... 2016, November 5th, 2016. Know that you're everything, everything, every little piece of the bone in my tibia, every little star that's died in a black hole, every laughter of every kid that's ever existed. And the snail that showed up in the rain outside. That's beautiful heritage. Not because, not because, but be, be in fullness, being in fullness. Yeah. That's good. That's that's an okay place to stop. What do you say? Good. I like that. Good. Thank you, Joanna. We had fun. We did.
We are having fun. Is not done here, and we may not ever figure it out. We probably won't figure it out.